Does anyone know how I unhide myself? No, you're here. You're still on. You're on video. You see me? Yeah. yeah. Did you see me the whole time? Uh, for most of it, yeah. Oh. Okay. Hi, Coke Scholar family and friends. Welcome to season two of The Sip, the podcast that shares a taste of the Coke scholars around the world who are igniting positive change. My name is Erica Jones, and I'm a proud 2011 Coca-Cola scholar, originally from Los Angeles, and now finishing up my final year of ministry school in Northern California. I'm an actor, a poet, a storyteller, but most importantly, a lover of people. For those of you who are listening and may not be a Coca-Cola scholar, welcome. We are glad to have you. To give you a little background, the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation is the largest achievement-based and corporate-sponsored scholarship program in the country. Each year, it awards $20,000 to 150 high school students across the country who share a unique passion for service and leadership. It's a competitive program to get into, but once you're a Coke Scholar, the benefits go far beyond the money for college. You become a part of this bigger family for life. If you want to learn more, you can visit their website at coca-colascholarsfoundation.org. Happy 2021. Wow, what a year. Both tumultuous, kind of frustrating, but I'm grateful for the time that it offered and I'm grateful for the opportunity to engineer wildly creative solutions to all of these global issues. Welcome back to The Sip for our last episode of season two. I'd be remiss if I said that I wasn't a little bit sad. Maybe a lot of bit sad. In today's episode, 2000 scholar Kevin Shen will be talking with 2013 scholar Joe English, the founder and executive director of Hope in a Box, a nonprofit that helps educators create inclusive classrooms for LGBTQ students. Originally from Orange County, California, Kevin Shen is an Asian American actor based in London and Los Angeles. Kevin studied computer systems engineering and sociology at Stanford University and received his MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Kevin also worked in the corporate world before transitioning into an acting career. He can most recently be seen as King Tai in the latest installment of Netflix's super popular A Christmas Prince film series and works regularly in film, television, and theater. Kevin produced and starred in the European premiere of David Henry Huang's Pulitzer Prize finalist play, Yellowface, at the National Theatre in London. And he was also in the first all-East Asian production at the Royal Shakespeare Company. He strives to increase the visibility and positive representation of Asian Americans and British East Asians in the entertainment industry. Let's meet Joe. Joe English is the founder of Hope in a Box, a national nonprofit that helps educators create safe, welcoming, and inclusive classrooms for LGBTQ students. The organization provides educators with curated boxes of books with LGBTQ characters, detailed curriculum for these books, and training and mentorship on how to build an inclusive classroom. In 18 months, Hope in a Box has grown from a small pilot into a national program supporting hundreds of schools in all 50 states. Prior to Hope in a Box, Joe worked for Generation.org, the world's largest education to employment NGO and for McKinsey & Company, where he focused on public education and economic development. Joe was named Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2019 and is a recipient of the Jefferson Award for Public Service. 
Now let's hear Kevin and Joe. Cool. Joe English, nice to meet you. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Uh, I've been reading about Hope in a Box and kind of your journey um, or a little bit about your background. But um, why don't you, uh, let, let's just start off, like, where are you right now? And kind of uh, what's your year been like? The foundational questions here, I love it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm based in Brooklyn. I live in Flatbush with my partner. Um, we have been in Brooklyn through the crazy wave that has been COVID and then recovery and now COVID spike too. Um, so we've been kind of in the thick of things, but thankfully everyone, at least in my family, um, has been healthy. How long have you been in New York and where did you start? Where did you come from? Yeah. Um, so I've been in New York for the last three and a half years. Um, I started working at McKinsey right out of undergrad. I did most of my work in like the education and economic development practices there. So working a lot for state and local governments, um, NGOs, some uh, private equity shops originally from way upstate, but, uh, New York has been my, my home post-college. Well, tell us a little bit about Hope in a Box and then tell us when you started it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we have a very simple vision, uh, which is that every single student deserves to feel safe and welcome and included at school, regardless of their gender identity, regardless of their sexual orientation, right? It should be that simple. Um, and we really see literature as kind of the key like piece of that puzzle, um, where in the hands of a caring teacher, books and stories can really open the hearts and minds of kids, right? They can, they can cultivate empathy. They can fight against stereotypes. So we provide something to, to public schools uh, called Hope in a Box, which is three things. Um, the first is a curated set of books that have LGBTQ characters and authors. We have a box that's for middle school level and a box for high school level. Um, the second is detailed curriculum for those books to make it as easy as possible for educators to actually use the books we send them. Um, all the curriculum, it's written by experienced English teachers. They're tied to common core standards. And as of this fall, they're adapted for both in-person and virtual learning. Oh, cool. Um, and the third part is you know, a, a whole set of professional development, peer-to-peer -peer mentorship, um, coaching that help educators kind of answer all the tough questions that might come up in the classroom as they work with these materials for the first time. Um, it's super important to us that we we're not just kind of dropping materials on the front door and leaving, but rather you know, developing a relationship with educators sure. and providing them support over time. So that's, um, that's a little bit of, of what we do. I mean, the personal background, as I kind of mentioned, I grew up in a 1900 person, super small farm town, way, way upstate New York. Um, basically when I was growing up, I never saw or watched or read anything that I felt really spoke to me as a gay person. Um, and it would have meant the absolute world to me to have had like, even one book with one gay character or like one unit in history class that talked about LGBTQ people um, just to understand like, Hey, there are LGBTQ people in the world. And like, this is something that I could, you know, be open about and, and proud of rather than something to be like super scared of. And, and yeah. um, but of course I didn't have that ended up leaving high school feeling pretty confused and frustrated and, didn't go back for about five years until I decided I should have a kind of open conversation with some of my teachers about that and say, moving forward, what would it take to bring positive representation of queer people into schools like mine, um, wow. rural schools or very religious schools, et cetera. Um, and that's really where Hope in a Box was born. So you just, uh, so you just went back there and were like, Hey, teachers, this is, this is what I want. Um, and then it just 
you just built it into this company. Yeah, I, it was, I was very nervous. <laughs> I, like I said, I mean, I hadn't gone back in about five years. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought it's someone needs to have this conversation. Right. And I think the, the revelation from that conversation was my teachers were very much on the same page. Like they were sure. enthusiastic and they said, we see the need for this. We want to have our classrooms and curriculum be more diverse and inclusive, but we don't really know where to start. Um, so help us figure out what resources to use and how we can start kind of making our classrooms more diverse and inclusive and also um, make it very, very affordable. I mean, my school, right. like a lot of rural schools, chronically underfunded. Um, so I think in order to get these resources and this training into schools, it's not just providing the sort of best practices, quote unquote. It's also making those resources accessible to schools, um, again, especially in rural areas. Cool. So, so how are you doing that? How are you getting these books? What are you, what books are you sending them? Oh my God. I have so many questions about the books. Cause I'm really curious. I've been spending my lockdown basically reading so much <laughs> right. more than I have in the past five years. Um, so yeah. How, how, uh, how are you making it so affordable to get, to get all these books out to these uh, schools and how yeah. many schools are you sending them to? I presume it started with your own schools, but then how much have you expanded? Yeah, I've just asked um, you four questions at once. No, I love it. We'll, we'll take them each in turn. Um, so uh, in terms of the numbers, we started, you're right, started with my school at the first one, um, which was nice, kind of full circle. But we then kind of grew into a pilot uh, program with each of those three components that I mentioned, just very kind of basic first draft. Um, we sent that program to about 30 schools around the country. Got a lot of really good feedback from them on, hey, what's working? Um, what's not working? What are your students like? What do you need more of? And with that feedback, then we brought an updated program this past fall to about 300 schools in all 50 states. Um, the goal ultimately is to reach all 7,000 rural school districts in the United States. Um, wow. And to make LGBT in inclusive education the norm rather than the exception in every single public school. Um, so th that's a little bit on, on the, the growth. Uh, to answer your other question on how we pulled the book list together and what are the books. Um, so you can go actually to hopeinabox.org slash books. Um, and we have our list there. It's been very exciting to, to pull this together. We worked with about 50 professors and expert teachers around the country to pull together a list of 50 excellent LGBTQ um, inclusive books for middle and high school audiences. And that's what you'll find there. Um, it is a living document. So I would say from 2018, which is when we did the first iteration of this to now, I'd say probably 40 or 50% of the books are new based on feedback from students and teachers oh, wow. and new titles that have come out. Um, so it's a living document. Are they all like um, books for curriculum or are they also just like, you know, pop, pop literature that can just be read and like fun books or um, kind of how does that span? That is an excellent question. Um, and I, I think that it depends a lot on the school um, and on their grade level and on what the teacher wants. Like, what, what's the purpose of using a particular book, right? Um, I will say that we do, have, there's a wide variety of books in there. So we've got books by Virginia Woolf and Oscar Wilde and Herman Melville, right? They're the kind of quote unquote classics yeah. and part of the canon that very easily, picture of growing gray, very I think, easily fit into what any kind of traditional school would view as, you know, something aligned with common core standards or something that would be in their curriculum. And then we of course have much more contemporary books. So um, Hurricane Child by Casey Callender is a, it's a fairly recent one. Um, 
uh, Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson, which just came out this past year, is on there. So there's a, there's a wide range of texts, and the purpose is to give educators, again, a diverse set of materials they can use depending on what they need in their classroom. So if it's okay. giving one book to a particular student, you have that. If you want something that you assign in your class formally, there's also that as well. Now, uh, you know, some of the books that you mentioned, that uh, those classics, you know, The Melville and Picture Dorian Gray and Richard Virginia Wolf, those are... Um, uh, do a lot of these schools not already have these books? Is it introducing these books or is it now kind of just bringing to the forefront kind of the LGBTQ aspects of it? Um, yeah, and that's a great point It's both. And I think in the case of something like, let's use the picture of Dorian Gray as an example, that is more about the curriculum and the coaching, mm-hmm. right? And, and using our program as a way to see those books in a new light, right? And to introduce themes that might otherwise be kind of swept under the rug or not even noticed bring those to the fore. Um, Picture of Dorian Gray is an interesting story, actually. Um, Oscar Wilde was much more open, actually, about some of the LGBTQ themes in that book in his first draft and the first manuscript. And his editor actually stripped out a lot of that content. There was a new version of this book that was republished um, in 2012, an annotated version that included some of those original passages, right? So it's actually really interesting now in classrooms, you can teach the text as it was in the 80s, 90s, whatever, but add this new layer of thinking about not just what's in the book and the LGBTQ themes, but also historically how those themes had been treated and how that interacts with the author's life. Right. right? Fascinating. I that feel like that's really interesting. I feel like it's not too far off from uh, the present day <laughs> and like Hollywood and kind of how scripts are edited uh, to, you know, um, fit the quote unquote taste of the mainstream or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, whitewashing in my case, Asian characters, or I guess in picture Dorian Gray, you can call it straight washing, I guess, <laughs> um, where you just get rid of, um, you know, these chunks of text. That's, that's fascinating. And, and interesting how it's still, I think is very relevant. So we're talking about rural schools and that's kind of your main focus, but I do think about urban areas and potentially uh, immigrant communities and people of color um, where maybe uh, LGBTQ is still a bit more taboo or in their conservative households and stuff like that. Is that something that you think about or is there, uh, you know, is there a, a case for getting these, these books to urban schools as well? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and there, uh, unfortunately there is need everywhere for the first round of getting this program out though. We are focused on rural schools and title one schools. The reason for that is pretty simple. I think there are two, one, these schools historically have the least access to this particular type uh, of literature or these perspectives. Um, just speaking just from personal experience growing up in a rural community, it's very, very rare um, to see experiences or identities outside of a very small bubble, right? They're incredibly, generally much more homogenous than an inner city school, say in Flatbush, Brooklyn, where I live, and you walk down the street or into Prospect Park, you see people from all walks of life. Sure. Um, and also, again, Title I schools that are historically very underfunded, they just don't have the resources to invest in these materials themselves, even if they do see a need. So that's our first step. But you're absolutely right. The aspiration longer term is to branch out. Sure. That makes sense. And, and with these schools where they do have traditionally less exposure, um, how do you follow up with them? Are you able to track kind of the success of, or, or what kind of difference it's making in these schools? Yeah. And that's, that's super important to us. So we're working with um, 
professor from Auburn University. He's a former high school uh, teacher in rural Ohio. Um, and we're kind of doing two things, but qualitative and quantitative. So qualitatively, um, we do small focus groups with our educators monthly um, to talk to them about, hey, how are you using the program? What are you finding is resonating? What would be more helpful from us? That serves a couple of purposes. One is that it gives them a nice sense of community, right? And they're enjoying sure. it for that for that part. But it also gives us really rich kind of insight into how is this working on the ground and how can we improve? Um, that's the qualitative side. The quantitative side, we're also using, we developed a survey that we send to folks prior to them receiving and joining our, our program to understand their perception of their school climate, their own ability to support LGBTQ students, current resourcing, and we deploy that same survey every six months to see how that's evolving over time. Okay. We're still in the early stage, but that's kind of how we're, we're thinking about getting a handle on the impact and some of the outcomes. Cool. Clearly you want the representation of these LGBTQ characters to be positive, to, mm. you know, let people have both their, I, I guess, LGBTQ kids see characters that are positive, but then also for others to learn about, to learn the empathy um, mm-hmm. that allows them to, I guess, be more understanding of their peers. A lot of the books I've been reading have not had particularly positive depictions of uh, LGBTQ characters, but they have been by LGBTQ authors. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you stay away from or is that also fair game? Or um, And they, they weren't necessarily negative depictions of characters, I guess, but they were quite dark subject matter. Kind of how do you balance that? Mm-hmm. Or is that an issue at all? It's super tricky. Um particularly, again, in this realm of LGBTQ literature, where I think you find, there, I'm sure there's some study on this, or some, like, someone quantified this, but for the books prior to, like, the year 2000, I would say, I would guess, like, 90, 95% of those books have very tragic stories. Yeah. Unrequited love, or family rejection, or other just really painful internalized homophobia, all kinds of very painful experiences with LGBTQ identity. Um, So to answer your question, we don't avoid that. I mean, it's just part of history of LGBTQ literature. And I think there's still a lot to be learned and thought about as you look at how these characters over time have dealt with their own identity and have viewed that identity within the context of their society. Just as one example, um, The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall is like an iconic um, story of an individual who, you know, is questioning their own gender identity and their own sexuality was published in the 1920s. Um, And it's really interesting to read just to to understand the conception of gender and sexuality back then to see one of the earliest depictions in public, in, in, you know, mainstream literature of that, uh, that sort of dilemma and that identity. But it's really painful to read because the character themselves also has really deeply internalized homophobia and transphobia. Um, so in order to teach books like that relative to something that's like in 2020 and just purely positive, educators just need a little bit more. They tell us they need a little bit more training to figure out how to talk about that relationship between character and own identity and society and that identity. Um, so long-winded answer of saying it's important to cover historically um and there's a lot to be learned there but it just takes a little bit of extra training and and thinking about how to and that's it. all you provide that as well you're there for the support to help them curriculum wise very cool yeah. um uh 
And I want to talk a little bit more, you know, obviously um, we t- I touched on the kind of urban areas uh, intersectionality wise. Do you guys really um, make sure you cover kind of authors of color and characters of color as well? Yeah. And I think there are two ways of thinking about that. One is the diversity of identity within the LGBTQ identity yep. umbrella itself. Um, and then also with other identities, right? So we've been very deliberate about making sure that we're bringing in stories and authors who speak to the trans experience as well sure. as the kind of bisexual experience, which often are, I think, ignored, right, in a lot of arts, whether that's visual arts, performing arts, whatever. Yeah. Um, but then also, yeah, more than half of the books uh, on our list feature um, characters with uh, of color or authors of color. Um, oh, that's also cool. really important. And that's, you know, we also have books there from uh, authors who were speaking uh about the experience growing up like on the African continent or in East Asia, South Asia as well. So national identity, religious identity, racial identity, those are all definitely elements there. We want to make sure there's something for everyone in, in this list. Right? Amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got to check out your list. You've really covered it all. Um, that sounds great. Um, so I want to ask you about kind of this like representation a little bit. So I, as an Asian American actor, um, I'm always like torn with like, you know, seeing Asians on screen. And I like, part of me is like, Oh, I just want them to be like, just, they could be anybody. they just happen to be Asian versus, um, uh, but then also being like, but then I also want their Asian is to be quite important um, to be like informing their character and like their background, you know, you know, showing people, you know, what their experience is like. Uh, and I imagine there are parallels with LGBTQ, LGBTQ characters. And I think, um, what are your thoughts of representation? Are, you, are, are the characters in these books, do they just, you know, are they just, do they just happen to be gay and they just, it, or, 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 or is there, um, their LGBTQ identity um, germane to the plot uh, or, or to the story somehow. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a balance, right? Like it just how people feel about their own identities too. Right. It's like, I want to just be seen as a regular person. Like, why can't I just be treated like everyone else? But also my identity has been really important in shaping who I am. Right. Right? It's, it's a weird balance between those two things. And again, I I don't think anyone has a perfect answer on it. I mean, in, in our book list, we certainly have books like, Boy Meets Boy by David Levithan, um, where the whole premise is it takes the boy meets girl plotline and it makes it boy meets boy instead. And it just treats that as the norm, right? Or right. actually that is that is how society works and that's super normal and that's how it happens in school. So it, it takes that kind of to the extreme. Um, whereas other books like, again, The Well of Loneliness, not to, to use example too many times, but like the entire point of the book are huge portion of the book is this person wrestling with this identity like that right. is defining the plot and the character of the book but so there's a range of them for every person like it's it's different right for some right. people there there's sexual orientation or gender identity is really it takes up most of their own sort of conception of who they are whereas for other people it's kind of, you know, it's kind of secondary right so right. it depends person to person it's just important to to reflect that Right. So I think just the answer is there just needs to be way more representation of everything across the board. And then we'll just have it all. We don't even have to worry about it. It doesn't even have to be a thought. It's just so much representation. Giving people options. Yeah, I think it's all about options. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of um, how your uh, entrepreneurial journey came kind of with... Uh, hope in a box and kind of what your decision was to actually making that kind of jump into it becoming an actual full-time venture. How was, how was that? Yeah. 
I mean, it, it wasn't well planned out. I will say it kind of just started. I, I started this as a side of desk project after that first conversation with my teachers. And I mentioned probably like three or four months after starting at McKinsey. Um, and from there, it was just doing kind of some research on the side, talking with folks, understanding how I could do something that would be additive rather than you know, reinventing the wheel. And from there, it kind of just grew with more interest from teachers. Our pilot went really well. And I think momentum sort of organically started building to the point where this past uh, February, we had hundreds of schools on our wait list excited to join. I obviously care a lot about this, so I was excited to spend more and more time on it. Um, and thankfully, I, I do feel like I got a lot of good skills from McKinsey where I felt prepared and excited to be able to jump off and do something on my own. And, and I felt ready to tackle something like that. So the timing was a little awkward with COVID <laughs> jumping yeah. off in March to start doing this full time. Wow. It worked out really well. And I think that, you know, th there are a lot of twists and turns, particularly with COVID, but I think that's just generally the course of doing anything entrepreneurial and just being able to roll with the punches and say, no, we're going to stay true to the mission, eyes on the prize. Um, and being able to roll with it has been a great lesson in being flexible. I just wanted to ask you uh, straight up, what's your, what is your favorite book in your box and out of your box? Maybe they're the same one, actually. Okay. <laughs> Let's sell Two Birds, One Stone. Um, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, I think. Of course. One that I just always comes to mind right off the bat. I mean, personally, it was, it was the first piece of literature that I read where I felt wow, like I fully relate to this main character in a way that I've never felt like I've related to a main character before. And like that moment of like that, it's, it's, it's like a revelation basically to be able to, to understand someone like that and feel like someone's writing to you and for you. Um, obviously he was not right. But I felt, I felt that way. Right. I know we talked about um, getting in touch with the schools and now you're saying you have a, a big wait list with these schools. Um, how do you, how, well, I guess now they're finding, how do they find you, A, but then how do you, how did you approach them? Were you cold calling just random schools or, um, and what, what was the response? We, uh, the original list of schools that we used for our pilot, um, we basically reached out to cold or through friends from college. They're like, who were in, grew up in rural areas and still had educators that they were in touch with. Um, so that was more kind of outbound and approaching them and seeing if this was something that they would be interested in. But since then, we've done basically no outreach on our end. It's all been kind of inbound, organic you know, interest. We find typically that for any one school that we support, we'll get like two to four other schools in like neighboring counties or areas that reach out to us asking to, to participate. So uh, we now have just over 600 schools on our wait list all over the country. It's been incredibly inspiring to see educators really care about this, want to step up and, and do more. Uh, wow, that's amazing and very impressive. Um, do you have educators who are reluctant to do it? This is really interesting. Educators generally are very, very supportive. Um, the worry sometimes comes with school boards. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's intuitive in a way, right? I mean, school boards are political institutions, right? They're, they're elected officials. They're not spending time in classrooms in the way that educators spend time in classrooms. And they see students who are struggling with their own identity or they see students who are being bullied. 
Um, and they, they see the need then to find programs and materials to support those students and all, and all students to create more empathy among all students. So typically what we find is educators will be super interested or librarians or school social worker or school psychologist or someone like that who's yeah. on the ground will be excited. Um, and that usually is enough to say, yeah, we're going to bring this to the school and we'll go from there. Um, in a couple instances, we've had school boards push back. Um, but the trick there has been, again, to frame this in, in very human terms, right? This is not some conceptual conversation about civil rights or about a political agenda. It is a very simple human discussion about how we make sure kids feel safe at school. Um, there is not a single parent or teacher that wants to see a child ostracized. There's no one that wants to see a kid bullied. And if this is part of the solution and the teachers on the ground say this is part of the solution, we should listen to them. How has the pandemic changed things with Hope in a Box? Yeah, um, it, it was pretty unexpected, actually. So our initial reaction, I think, like a lot of organizations was, hey, let's make everything digital. Like, let's transition all of our books to ebooks, all of our programming to, you know, to Zoom. Cool. Uh, but we talked to a bunch of our educators and said, like, is this actually going to be useful for you? And what we heard from most of them is they actually strongly preferred continuing to get physical resources. Um, the reason for that one is a lot of rural schools, they're not, you know, they're, they're not affected by COVID in the exact same way as urban districts. Sure. They have lower population density that it's easier for them to reopen. So they are still in the building uh, a lot of, a lot of times. And the other, um, many rural schools and title one schools, they just don't have the technology to really make full use of eBooks. Like they don't have tablets. They don't have e-readers. They don't have computers for all their students. So sending them digital books actually in some ways reinforces the inequality in those schools. Uh, physical books actually can be quite a bit more uh, versatile. All right. That makes sense. I think it's time for our fast five, which is how we end all these podcasts. Um, so I'm going to ask you five questions and um, your job is to answer quickly. The first thing that comes to your mind, um, they're pretty fun. And we may have probably talked about some of them already. Um, firstly, what are two apps or websites that you can't live without? Oh God. Uh, the New Yorker, not to sound like a complete terrible coastal liberal. Um <laughs> Wow. I actually never use, I'm so bad with my phone. I guess Gmail. That's the most boring <laughs> answer ever, but it's true. Cool too. If I looked at the music on your iPhone or iPod, right now, iPod, I love that that's still in the question. If I looked at the music on your iPhone right now, what would most surprise me? Country. It's all country. Oh, wow. That does surprise me. Exciting. Um, favorite book or piece of music or art that has helped or inspired you in your life? Oscar Wilde. I love him. Incredible author. Cool. Any book in specifically? I mean, The Picture of Dorian Gray, I think, is a masterpiece. Yeah. Every single sentence is, like, perfectly constructed. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and what quote or motto do you live by? Oh, God. I feel like I can't pull one of these to mind right off the bat. Um, there's a quote that's about luck being a function of preparedness and chance. Ah. I, don't, I can't quote it for you because I don't know it well enough. No, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I can't quote it to you either, but... I got you. Um, and finally, what makes the Koch Scholars Program or network unique? Mm, many things. Uh, I would actually say that some of my closest friends in life, I'm not just saying this because Carolyn's paying you to say this. She's not. Some of my closest friends in life actually came from Koch, Koch, the Koch Scholars Network. Wow. Um, Joel Burbell, who's one of my best friends from school and, and from Coca-Cola and from life, 
I met him that weekend. He's actually one of the reasons why I was able to start Hope in a Box. He was super helpful in thinking through this this question in this program just from the earliest days. And he's one of my biggest supporters and I'm one of his biggest supporters. So the, the people, as cliche as that is, it's really true. Very cool. Yeah, it's a great network. I love it. Um, it's been wonderful talking to you, Joe. Uh, I, your organization sounds so cool and inspiring. Uh, how, how do scholars help support Hope in a Box? Can we donate to you or, uh, you know, what's the best way to, to kind of um, get the word out or, or support your organization? Yeah. So, I mean, just two ways uh, to support. One, if you know an educator or a school that you think would benefit from Hope in a Box, um, send them to our website. They can fill out a short application and, and get on the wait list. Uh, we're supporting more and more schools every single semester. So we'd love to, to support schools that co-scholars are connected to. And the second, it, obviously the, the other half of that is helping us bring Hope in a Box to more schools. And it costs $500 to bring to support an entire school with our program. Um, any dollar amount makes a difference. $5, $50, 500 uh, right on our website, hopeinabox.org slash donate. There are a bunch of different levels to give if, if you have the ability to. Cool. Well, that was a pleasure. Excellent. We hope you enjoyed this episode between Kevin and Joe for links to Hope in a Box and other things they discussed. Check out our show notes or coconutscolascholarsfoundation.org. And if you have an extra minute, we'd love for you to rate the show or leave us a review. This concludes our second season of the Coke Scholars Ignite podcast. I've had a blast being a part of this sip, and I hope that you have too. Season three will feature even more incredible Coke Scholars, so get ready. In the meantime, we are excited to bring you a bottle or bonus episode where we'll get to know Junior Bridgman, owner and CEO of the Heartland Coca-Cola Bottling Company. From playing professional basketball with the Milwaukee Bucks, and LA Clippers, shout out to Los Angeles, to owning over 450 restaurants in 20 states. He has an incredible career journey. Junior is also on the Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation Board of Directors, so make sure you do not miss this special bonus episode. Thank you for joining us for season two of The Sip. See you next time.